Well, good morning, saints. I trust you were greatly challenged and blessed by the faithful proclamation of the truth over the last couple of Sundays regarding our need to be thankful people. Pastor Kevin pointed out that for us, ingratitude is not simply a weakness, but it's a most grievous sin against our good God who deserves thanksgiving always. I want to challenge you, don't be like the person that James 1 talks about who looks in the mirror, he sees himself as he is, but afterward he walks away and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Make sure if you haven't already done so, that you note some clear, specific, concrete ways that you plan to pursue repentance in the area of thankfulness and and how you're going to pursue cultivating a thankful heart toward God. This morning, I want to invite you back into the upper room, back to John chapter 14. And what we saw in verses 1 through 11 were that Jesus was comforting his disciples in light of their grief over the news that he was going away. And then verses 12 through 14, we saw Jesus shift back to the topic of the disciples' mission that he will be sending them on when he departs. And as we continue on in the next few chapters of John, we'll see Jesus continue to comfort his disciples while preparing them for their mission as his witnesses. Also, we should note that the ground we've covered so far in John 14 has contained repeated appeals for the disciples to believe in Jesus. That's how they need to deal with their troubled hearts. They need to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is God. As we continue along in chapter 14, we'll see a shift in the emphasis from believing in Jesus to an emphasis on loving Jesus and obeying Jesus. We see that shift begin in our passage this morning. Our text is John 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach your throne of grace in prayer because of the mediation of your Son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and whose strength we come before you and offer up our prayers to you. I ask, Lord, that you would illumine your word to our hearts this morning by your Spirit, that you would help us not only to understand what the word says, but that you would cause it to lay hold of our hearts. Wash us with your word. Make us more like Christ with it. Equip us to live our lives in service to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus loved his disciples. We see that his disciples also loved him. These disciples couldn't stand the thought of being apart from Jesus. 
And yet the reality is that he is going to return to his father shortly. And so Jesus gives clarification to the disciples on how to love him when he's gone. We're living today in a similar situation. Jesus has already ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so, how are we to express our love to Christ as we await his return? We'll see in this passage that Jesus gives the disciples a challenge regarding their love for him, and then he's going to make a promise to those who love him. We have a challenge and a promise from Christ for those who love him that will help us to know how we are to express our love for Christ as we await his return. So first, let's look at the challenge that Jesus issues to the disciples regarding their love for him. Verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a conditional statement. Jesus establishes a relationship between love for him and obedience to his commandments. Those who truly love Christ will show that love through obedience to his commandments. In the Greek, there are four different words that get translated love in English. The word Translated love here is agape. And the sense of this kind of love is that it is to place a high value on a person or thing. It is to esteem them. The disciples do possess a real love for Jesus. They do value and esteem him. They don't want him to be gone. They don't want to be apart from him. If they could figure out some way to to prevent this departure, they would try to do it. Or if they, could, if they can't stop him from going, they're wanting to know where he's going so they can follow him there. They love him, yet they are allowing their hearts to become troubled as they listen to him. This is clouding their thinking. They're quarreling with each other over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom is clouding their thinking. And what we've seen with Peter and then with Thomas and then with Philip is that they were not listening very well to Jesus. Rather than just accepting what he says, they push back on it. What needs to happen is that they need to continue to mature in their love for Christ. There's a lot of pride and a lot of self-love getting in the way. And they need to move on from the kind of thinking that says, I can't stand the thought of him going away to the kind of thinking that says, how can I best serve him when he's gone? And they will serve him best by learning to listen to him. They will serve him best by learning to do what he says rather than pushing back on what he says. Hence Jesus' statement in Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They need to learn to obey what he says and not question what he says. There's quite a lot that's said in that simple statement. 
in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there are a few principles that we can draw from this. First, if there's no obedience to Jesus in your life, there's no love for Jesus in your heart. True love for Jesus will show itself in obedience to Jesus. Titus says of false teachers in Titus 1.16 that they profess to know God, but in their works, they deny him. People can say that they love Jesus with their mouths, but at the end of the day, what they say with their lives will prove whether they love him. So first principle here is that true love for Jesus is not just something we profess. It will be evidence in obedience to his commands. Second principle that we can draw from this statement is that true obedience is rooted in love for Jesus. There's a clear ordering here. If you love, then you obey. You're not obeying Jesus if what you're doing is not motivated by love for him. If you go to church and participate in church activities with the primary focus of what other people think of you, that's not obedience to Christ. The same applies in your home. The same applies in your workplace or anywhere else that you are. It's not obedience to Christ if it's not motivated by a love for Christ. So true obedience to Jesus is necessarily motivated by love for Jesus. A third principle from this verse that we can draw is that love for Christ affects how you view his commandments what you think about his commands. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to see here how the Lord refers to his commandments. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 in 13. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. God gives commands to his people for their good. And that's the kind of perspective that one who is impacted by Christ, whose life has been changed by Christ, who has been filled with a love for Christ, will see his commandments. They will trust God. They will know that God is good. And they will know, therefore, that the commands that he gives are for their good. I want you to flip to the other side of your Bible. First, John. 
And we see the same idea. 1 John 5, verse 3. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We see that his commands are good. They're not a burden. This is saying something about our attitude toward his commands. When we love the Lord, when we come to know him as good, we trust that his commands are good. We don't see them as a burden. We see them as a reflection of his character. We see them as a reflection of what he loves, what he hates. If we love him, we come to understand that his commandments are not the burden. Sin is the burden. Love for Christ affects how you view his commands. There's a fourth principle from this verse, and really it's, a, it's contextually based back in John 14. As we've already noted, verses 1 through 14, we see a lot of emphasis on believing in Jesus, a call to believe upon him. And believing in Jesus is foundational to loving Jesus. Love is the result of faith. You're not saved by your love for Jesus. You're saved by Jesus' love for you. You believe in the love that he has shown to you on the cross, and that produces in your heart a love for him, for the one who died for you. And so, the ordering you end up with then is that faith in Jesus leads to a love for Jesus which then drives obedience to Jesus. You see him as worthy to be obeyed. And so, in summary, first principle, no obedience. If there's no obedience to Jesus in your life, there's no love for Jesus in your heart. Second, true obedience to Jesus is motivated by a love for Jesus. Third, a love for Christ affects how you view his commands, that you see them as being there for your good and not burdensome. Sin is the burden. And fourth, faith in Jesus leads to a love for Jesus, which drives obedience to him. Now, Jesus had just given his disciples a commandment there in the upper room. Not too long back in our study, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Jesus has commanded his disciples to imitate his love for them toward one another. And that's one of the chief ways that we show our love for Christ, how it comes out in our lives, by 
loving our fellow believers for whom Christ died, for whom Christ shed his precious blood. Let that be a challenge to us. So we think back on that command from Christ. And you remember also we talked about how all these one another's that are there in Scripture are, are specifics on this loving one another, these specific ways that we practice that love toward one another. And the challenge that we should search through those and check where has the Lord been working in our lives to help us grow in practicing the one another's. Where maybe the Lord be exposing that we're falling short and we need to grow. He calls us to love one another and he sets the standard the way that he has loved us. Are we loving one another like Jesus has loved us? That should be the question that challenges us. Understand this. How we love one another reflects our love for Christ. Because Christ is the one that commanded us to do that. And so we express our love for Christ by our love for one another. Let's be stirred afresh to obey this command from Christ, to love one another as he's loved us. There's also an amazing connection from what Jesus says in John 14, 15, and what he will commission the disciples to do later in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, to make this disciples, and then he, he explains the means to doing that. The first is baptizing them, one of the first steps of obedience to Christ after a person is saved is to be baptized. And then in verse 20, it says that they are to be teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. All that Christ has commanded. How about that? The disciples of Jesus are to be taught to live out their love for Christ by learning to obey all that Christ has commanded. We're going to have a a hard time fulfilling the Great Commission if we're not living it ourselves. We need to be a body that's continually growing in loving obedience to Christ in our own lives. If we are to make disciples of others, to teach others, to obey all that Christ has commanded. We need to be growing ourselves in the same ways. Part of our loving and obeying Christ includes this great commission work of making disciples. That is one of, another one of his commands for us to do. And so where does the rubber meet the road with all of this? Well, it starts with Immersing ourselves in the Word of God. If we're not growing in knowing the Word, how will we know what Christ has commanded us to do? It doesn't work to just read it once and then we have it down. But we must keep steeping in the Word, growing and understanding all the intricacies of what He's called us to do. We've got to meditate in the Word day and night. Be like the man in Psalm 1, the blessed man. And you see the results from that. Meditating in the word day and night leads him to have a life that is prospering in God's ways as he directs their steps. 
So if you're not in the Word, you're not even going to know what Christ has commanded you to do. But even if you're reading the Word and hearing the Word, there's still something more that is needed. We've seen Jesus' challenge to those who love him, that they are to obey all that Christ has commanded. But then there's a, a promise that we see in verses 16 and 17 that is crucial. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The promise for those who love Christ is that they will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had challenged the disciples that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. They will need to love each other like he had loved them so that all men would know that they are his disciples by their love for one another. They would need to fulfill the mission that he would send them out to do as his witnesses when he departs the Great Commission. Well, how on earth are they going to do all of that? Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you the Helper. That's how. They need the Spirit working through the Word in their lives. Now, I want to point out to you that the I, at the beginning of verse 16, is actually, there's a combination word there in the original language. It combines the word and and the word I. So what's happening there is verse 16 is being connected back to verse 16. 15. What he says in verse 16 is directly connected to what he said in verse 15. Those who love him will keep his commandments. And for those same ones who love him, Jesus promises them that he will ask the Father to send another helper to them. The Spirit will help them to follow through on what he commands. Now this is a monumental moment for the disciples. Jesus has been speaking very explicitly about his own divinity. And as if that weren't mind-blowing enough, he says there's another helper, the spirit of truth. We see here Jesus asking, the Father giving, the Spirit coming. This is the Trinity. The Spirit is now introduced to them in very explicit terms. Jesus had talked about the Spirit coming before in a more public setting, declaring it to many people in John 7. We can turn there. Jesus in a very public setting. The great day of the feast is going to cry out about this. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then we get the commentary from John. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John explains here that Jesus back then had been speaking about the coming of the Spirit to those who believe, and that it would happen after his return to the Father. Well, now in John 14, in the upper room, Jesus is speaking very explicitly to the disciples about this. That it is going to happen to these disciples who love him. Jesus also begins to make evident here the Spirit's distinctiveness as a person within the Trinity and also his divinity. Jesus calls him another helper. He's not the same person as Jesus. He is another helper. So there's a distinct distinction there. And as far as the Spirit's divinity, there are two words for another in Greek. One means another of the same kind. The other means one of a different kind. And the word that's used here is one of the same kind, another of the same kind. Also, interesting to note that John uses this word helper four times in the gospel to refer to the Spirit, and then in his letter, 1 John, he uses it once more, but this time to refer to Jesus. When he talks about Jesus being an advocate with the Father when his people sin, it's the same word there as what is his helper here in the Gospel of John. So Jesus is referred to with this term, helper. The Spirit is referred to with the same term. And that word, another, is of the same kind. So we see by that connection to Jesus, another helper like him. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God So Jesus, having been their helper all this time, they've been depending on him for everything. He is now going to go and continue to be their helper, but in heaven, interceding for them. And he's going to ask the Father to send another like him to be with them, to continue the work that Christ was doing on the earth. He will indwell the disciples. He will empower the disciples to live in loving obedience to Christ and to be his witnesses. And there's a glorious detail about this coming of the Spirit and his indwelling of the believer, indwelling of the one who loves Jesus. In verse 16, it says that he may be with you forever. How glorious is that, church? All of you who believe in Jesus have the Spirit of the living God indwelling you. And He is in you forever. How often do you think about that? 
the Spirit of the God who made heaven and earth, who created the cosmos, indwells you. Paul says in Ephesians that you've been sealed with the Spirit of promise. His indwelling of you is a guarantee that one day you will be in heaven in unhindered fellowship with God. But God is with you even now by His Spirit as you look forward to that day and as you serve Him now. And so you will never be alone, ever. He is with you forever. He's with you for eternity. What a glorious promise Jesus makes to his disciples here. He was going away, but he's not going to leave them alone. He would ask the Father, the Father would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would be with them forever. Now, in light of the fact that the disciples would be sent out into the world as his witnesses in the power of the Spirit, we see in verse 17 that the disciples are going to be set apart from the world. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus is telling them, you are distinct from the world. The disciples will be in the world, but they will not be of the world. There's a clear line drawn between those who know the Spirit, who have the Spirit, and those who cannot receive Him because they do not see Him or know Him. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, we see the situation described in this way. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are blinded by the God of this world, the devil. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And really, this takes us back to what we see in John 3, early on in this gospel. And that is that you must be born of the Spirit. Only those who are born of the Spirit can perceive the things of the Spirit. And so that sets the disciples apart from the world. We see in John 14, verse 17 also, another way in which the Spirit will be a helper like Jesus was a helper to the disciples. Christ had declared himself in John 14, 6, that he was the truth. And here the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Jesus had taught the disciples truth. They had depended upon him for truth. And now the Spirit of truth was going to be the one who would continue to teach them the truth. 
And we'll learn more specifics of this ministry of the Spirit concerning the truth as we continue along in John's gospel. But Jesus basically will foretell the writing of the New Testament by the Holy Spirit through the apostles as he speaks to them in this upper room and, and talks about how the Spirit is going to bring things to remembrance for them. The truth. And they will write it down. This, this very New Testament that we're reading now, Jesus foretells that in that upper room. It is the Spirit of truth that gives us the word of truth. But for now, I want you to notice about this statement of verse 17, that, that especially clear line that's drawn between those who are of the world and those who are the disciples of Jesus. Those who love Christ and those who hate Christ. Those who receive the things of the Spirit and those who don't know Him. Those who've been born of the Spirit and those who are dead in trespasses and sins. I want to consider... I want for us all to consider the question. Are you one who loves Jesus? Do you truly love him above all? Do you love him more than father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even your own life? Do you cherish Christ above all? Is he most precious to you. As I was coming to know the Lord, there was a significant aha moment for me. For people who don't know the Lord, religion is typically just a, it's a part of their life, like anything else, a slice of the pie. That had been my observation. But as I was scouring the Bible, looking for answers, it suddenly hit me that Jesus is to be Lord of everything. He's not just to be a, a slice of the pie in your life. He's to be all-consuming. The Bible was talking about all of life. And I understood at that moment that repentance was a complete turning away from sin, turning away from going my own way, and trusting wholly upon Christ, that He was to be supremely treasured over everything else. Has that happened to you? Are you inclined to obey Christ even when it costs you dearly because you love him? Are you inclined to obey Christ when no one else is around and only he is watching? Does it cause grief to your soul when you disobey Christ? Or do you just experience the worldly kind of sorrow that's just sorry you got caught and you don't like the consequences of your actions. If you don't have the drive to obey Christ when no one else is around, if you don't have the willingness to obey Christ if it's going to cost you, if you're only bothered by suffering consequences for your sin and not the fact that you actually offended Christ, it's because you don't have the Spirit of God who gives those desires to those in whom He indwells. When you've been born of the Spirit, He makes you a new person. He gives you new affections. He helps you to do what you could never do on your own. And so I would urge you, 
if you recognize that you don't have this work of the Spirit in your life, cry out to God today to save you. Confess your sin to Him. Ask Him to have mercy on you, a sinner, and to give life to your soul. And ask Him to set you free from your bondage to sin. Believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came to this earth, took on human flesh, being born of a virgin. And then he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He never sinned in any way ever, not even one wayward thought. But he was completely obedient in every respect. Lived a perfect life and he obeyed all the way to the point of death on the cross. Paying the eternal penalty that we're due for our sin against an infinitely holy God. He bore the everlasting wrath of God against the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead to show that he had defeated sin and death for his people. For those who trust in him. This is what happens when you're saved. The Spirit of God comes into your life and and applies this redemptive work of Christ to you. He causes you to be born again, giving you the gift of faith. And then you believe and you are justified. The righteousness of Jesus' perfect life is credited to your account as though you lived that life. And the unrighteousness of your sinful life is credited to Jesus' account. And he took that to the cross and put it to death. That's why born-again Christians love Jesus. Because he first loved us. He took the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And then he showers us with the blessings that he deserves for a perfectly righteous life. So I urge you, if you've not yet tasted of this, turn to Christ today. Trust in him. He is mighty to save. For those of you who are trusting in Christ, recognize where the power for loving Christ and obeying Christ comes from. It doesn't come from you. Recognize where the power to love one another and to be Christ's witnesses and to make disciples where that power comes from. You can't do it. It's an impossible task. But what is impossible with you is possible with God. So take Paul's exhortation in Galatians 5 to heart. To walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Depend on the Spirit Remember this glorious promise of Jesus that he sent the helper to help you obey what he's commanded, what he's called you to do. And the Spirit is at work to sanctify you, to mature your love for Christ, to empower you for obedience to Christ. The Holy Spirit has set you apart from the world, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So refrain from becoming like the world. Flee from those things that grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption.
and instead cultivate affections for Christ, the one who is worthy of your love. Devote yourself to obeying Christ's commands dependent by faith on the strength that the Spirit of God supplies. You have all the help you need in the Spirit to do what God has called you to do. So rejoice and give thanks that God's Spirit is in you forever. You are never alone. You are in fellowship with God. What glorious truths we've seen in this passage today. That's true for those who love Jesus. We understand, of course, that we love Jesus because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. The Spirit made us alive in Christ. He gave us the gift of faith, which leads to love for Christ, which drives us to want to obey Christ. Jesus issued a challenge to his disciples, the challenge that those who love Christ will keep his commandments. We need to progress past the why are you going away mindset of the disciples to the how can I serve him while he's gone mindset. What a blessing that Jesus not only calls us to loving obedience toward him, but he asks the Father to send the Spirit to enable us to walk out what he's called us to do. That's the glorious promise. That those who love Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're not indwelt because we love God as though our love merits the Spirit's indwelling us. But those who bear the marks of loving obedience to Christ have surely received the Spirit who enables that loving obedience to Him. Through the work of the Spirit, we come to see that Christ is truly worthy of being treasured above all else. He is worthy of love. He is worthy of obedience. And so may the Spirit of God continue His work of maturing our love for Christ in response to His love for us. May we sow to the Spirit and not entertain those things that grieve the Spirit. May we as a church be devoted to loving one another as Christ has loved us. And may we be devoted to the charge to make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And may we do so depending on the strength that the Spirit supplies and all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. You've demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we pray, Lord, in light of that, that you would continue to work to mature our love for Christ. We thank you that you've given us a clear picture of what it looks like to live out love for Christ. Those who love Christ will keep his commandments. We love you by doing what you've told us to do. We thank you for that clarity, Lord. And we thank you for the spirit that you have sent to enable us to that end. 
to live for your glory because you are worthy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more to depend upon the Spirit. That we might grow in our love for you and live in ways that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.